Revelation. It is a reminder that time will come to an end. And when time comes to an end, will you still have hope? Now, we have sought to make this a year of hope because I believe hope is what Jesus' followers embody, even in difficult times. In fact, we've adopted a verse this year, Romans 15, 13. We've encouraged you to memorize it, and and we're going to put it up on the screen. I want you to read it with me, and read it enthusiastically, not like Carolina fans in the second half of yesterday's ballgame. But I digress. Let's read this together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are to be people of hope. And in this series, Hope Forever, we are seeking to answer the question, will you have hope when time ends for you? Will you have hope? when time ends for you, because the reality is time will end for all of us. We will either die or the Lord will return, but time will end, and will you have hope in that moment? Now, it may seem strange to you that we're talking about hell today, and and, uh, people will come up to me from time to time, and they will say something like, Pastor, I don't mean to be critical, but... And of course, as soon as they say that, what's about to happen? You know, Pastor, I don't mean to be critical, but I think you should preach about hell more often. And usually people who say this to me, um, they have one of two agendas. The first agenda is actually not a bad one. Their agenda would be something like, I, I am worried about people that I love. I don't want people to go to hell. Pastor, I think if you preach about hell, that people might be frightened and they might turn to Jesus. But there is another subset. I have met people who want me to preach about hell because they believe they are going to heaven and they want me to step on somebody else's toes for a while. Well, today, we don't want to be in that second category. We simply want to talk about what the Bible actually teaches us about final judgment, and about hell. Interestingly enough, 62% of all Americans believe that there is a literal place called hell, 62%. And you can understand that because we have this innate sense of justice. We have this sense of bad people should be punished. And that justice is part of the image of God that's made into us. But in another poll, and this is the most recent polling data I could find, even though it's, it's somewhat dated uh, 20 years ago, I think it's still probably true. If you ask Americans, are you going to hell? Only half a percent of all Americans believe they are going to hell. In other words, Americans believe there is a hell, but they're not going. And I think that's because most Americans have embraced an idea which is not a biblical idea. And it is the idea that If I do enough good deeds, that will offset any bad deeds that I do. And so they begin to think about about their lives as an old-fashioned grocery store scale. Do do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about an old-fashioned grocery store scale? It's one where you put some weights on one side, you put some some stuff on the other that you want to buy, you try to get it to all balance out, or maybe even tip a little bit more to one side. 
People think about their relationship with God that way. If I can pile up enough good, it will offset the bad. Let me tell you the flaw in that thinking. That makes your relationship with God a matter of math. Do relationships run well based on math? You know they don't. Any of you who are married, any of you who are men, right? Because your wife has one day said to you, you need to help out at the house more, and your response is, well, I picked up three things off the floor yesterday. And that brings you closer, doesn't it? She just melts in your arms. Math does not equate to healthy relationships. And you cannot have a healthy relationship with God based on math. So, let's dive into Revelation. Let's find out what the Bible actually teaches us. We are hearing from John, who was an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. He had this vision. And we're told in verse 11 of chapter 20, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And pay attention to descriptions in the book of Revelation, they matter. So we're told there's a great white throne. In Greek, literally, it is megastronos. I don't know, it just sounds cool to say, doesn't it? Megathrone. Because after all, what other kind of throne does God deserve? And it is a white throne, which stands for the purity of God, the holiness of God, but something else. It means this judgment seat, this throne, there's no errors. The one who sits on this throne, every judicial decision he makes is right, it is pure, it is not subject to appeal. He is not able to be bribed or able to be corrupted. And John says, I saw him who sat upon it, who sits on this throne. Well, God, of course. And the immensity of this throne, look at the next part of verse 11. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. God shows up in all of his immensity, all of his enormity, and it is like all of the sky and the earth have to flee because God is larger than the universe. If you go to the edge of the universe and take one step further, God is still there. How big is your picture of God? J.B. Phillips wrote a book now some time ago called Your God is Too Small. Is your God too small? Listen to the enormity of God. The sky and the earth flee from his presence because he fills all available space. Now, we are told in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So everyone who has ever lived, the great, people like Queen Elizabeth II, our presidents, Lincoln, Washington, our key figures, Martin Luther King Jr., key figures in Christian history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, St. Augustine, Peter, Paul, 
all appear before this great white throne. And then the small, me, you, the homeless people, the people in prison, even these babies, they all appear before the great white throne of judgment. This is an all-call event. And there are books that are opened. The books are not given a description. One scholar suggests that they called, be called the book of deeds because in these books are written everything that every person has ever done. We're told the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. There will be no secrets before this great white throne. That's a little scary. The first time I heard this, my number one thought was, Lord, please let my mother not hear what is read under my name. I've gotten older. Now I think, Lord, please do not let my wife and children read what is, or hear what is read after my name. But I want you to think about this. Everything you've ever done will be written there. Now, when we talk about judgment, and particularly when we talk about hell, the question comes up, is God really being fair? Listen to this judicial language. God is not making a decision about you, about your life, based on his recollection, based on his impression, based on whether you're good looking or not. It's based on the evidence in the books. Everything you've ever done. Now, again, what most of us hope for, that the good will outweigh the bad. But that is never in the Bible anywhere presented as the standard of judgment. What's the standard of judgment? Well, God designed you to be a soul and God alone gets to decide what makes a healthy soul. Now hang with me. What kind of things are going to be written down in this book? We skip ahead to chapter 21, verse 8. And John there gives us actually a list. It is a list of sins. A list of things that make for an unhealthy soul. And listen to the list. But the cowardly, the cowardly are on the list. Who are the cowards? These are people who refuse to take a stand for Jesus. These are people when it, <coughs> excuse me, when it came time to do what was right versus what was expedient, chose to do what was expedient. These were the people who may have at one time said Jesus is Lord, but now they're under pressure, so they say Caesar is Lord. It means these people failed to give Jesus their highest, best, and first loyalty. Then, John gives us another sin, the unbelieving, the non-faithful. These are people who chose never to do life with God. And now, don't get in your mind a picture of of just an angry atheist. 
These are people who basically said, I can do my life and I don't need God's help. I can figure it out on my own. They give no thought to God in their life. Next on the list are the vile, literally the polluted. These are people so far gone into sin, they cannot tell you where the sin stops and their soul starts. What's the modern day equivalent of this? I think it's addiction. And let's remember, you can be addicted to drugs, of course, and addicted to alcohol, of course, but you can also be addicted to work and porn and video games and YouTube. where you lose your whole sense of self. You don't know where your soul begins and the sin stops. And then murderers. Murderers are on the list. Murderers are people who say, your life does not matter as much as my agenda, as my anger. But we also need to remember what Jesus said about this. You remember, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22? I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Have you looked at social media? Have you seen people calling other people fools? Have you seen even people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ calling other people fools? You can murder with your words as easily as you can murder with a weapon. Anytime you treat another person as worthless, it's murder. And the sexually immoral, that's on the list. The Greek word here is pornea, from which we get our word pornography, and it is a catch-all term. It refers to any sexual behavior outside of God's plan and God's design. What's God's plan and design? God's plan for sexual intimacy is to be between a man and a woman who are united in a covenant of marriage. That's God's plan. Now you'll notice something interesting, that murder and sexual immorality are paired together. Why? Because murder treats a person as an object. And sexual immorality also treats people as objects. And don't you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? When he said a man who sins sexually sins against himself? Because you see, when you sin sexually, not only are you treating another person as an object, you're treating yourself as an object. Freud was wrong. You are more than the sum of your sexual appetites. Far more. You're a soul. And the list isn't over. John says, those who practice magic arts. Now is he here talking about Harry Potter? No. And just a reminder, Harry Potter is fiction. 
I know some of you are still looking for Hogwarts, but it's just a story. It's actually a technical Greek word which refers to people in the marketplace who would mix up potions with drugs and give it to you as a solution to your problems. Take this potion, all your problems will be gone. Anybody heard of the opioid crisis? There are still people who will sell us potions. Still people who will say, take this, all your problems will disappear. They're hucksters. Anybody ever heard a commercial for a politician that says, vote for me and all your problems will be solved? Well, how's that working for you? But let's not just pick on politicians, they're easy. Just this week, I saw a commercial which told me if I will switch soap, I will attract women. Solve all my problems. I'm not gonna, there are so many places I could go with that and I'm just not gonna go there, okay? Except to say, maybe there's a lot more people who were deceiving other people than we're comfortable realizing. And John says the idolaters. In other words, anyone who puts anyone or anything above God. I've had this conversation more times than I can count. Young woman comes to me and she's grown up in our church and she says, Pastor, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm dating this boy and I really love him. But he says he has needs. I want to roll my eyes. I don't. He says he has needs and that boys aren't like girls. And if I don't help him with his needs, well, pastor, I'm afraid I'll lose him. What should I do? Lose him. Lose him. They never listen. I shouldn't say that. Maybe some of them do. It feels like none of them ever do. And you know what they do? And what they do is they say, okay, this boy is going to be my God. I'm going to give him weight above my God, above Jesus. Now listen, listen, don't feel like I'm just picking on young women who are hungry for love and acceptance. Because isn't it the truth that every one of us at some point in our life have put something ahead of God or someone ahead of God? I I know grown men who put their mamas ahead of God. I've seen parents put their children ahead of God. I've seen men put their careers ahead of God, women who put their careers ahead of God. Idolaters on the list. And all liars. It's interesting, isn't it? That John, in giving us this list, this vision, <coughs> he, he, he's talked about, about cowards and he's, he's talked about idolaters and, and murderers. But now, just so that we get the point, he talks about all liars. All liars. So apparently, we're not just talking about people who tell the whoppers. We're also talking about the people who tell the little white lies so grandma's feelings don't get hurt. 
what happens to these people? They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God looks at this list and says, these things make for an unhealthy soul. And you understand that, right? Can a coward have a healthy soul? Can a liar have a healthy soul? Can a person without sexual boundaries have a healthy soul? Can a person who's filled with hate and it just spews out, can they have a healthy soul? And that's why God says it's sin. So here's really the hard question for the morning. What is written under your name in the book of deeds? What's written under your name? I asked myself this question. And I'm not gonna give you the specifics, but I can tell you there are times I've been a coward and have not stood up for Jesus. And, and there certainly have been times when, when I have let my own addictions take precedence over God in my life. And, and there's certainly been times when I have been filled with hate and sometimes spoken out and said, you fool, but I've, I've said it in more colorful language than that. And I certainly have had sexually immoral thoughts. Please don't judge me. And, and, and the truth is, I, I've told lies. And I certainly have put things in front of God. But how about you? What's under your name? You see, see I think we get this wrong. We, we think, okay, how can a loving God send people to hell? But then we look at what we do to our own souls. And we realize wait a minute, it's not that God is sending people to hell. We're all on the highway to hell. That's what we're doing to ourselves. That's what we're doing to our own soul. But I want to tell you some good news. There is a road to hell and we're all on it, but thanks be to God, Jesus is the exit ramp. Jesus is the exit ramp. God sent his one and only son to this earth to die for our sins and if you receive him, receive that forgiveness, if you give your life to Jesus and follow him, you get to get off that highway and start following Jesus. Because you remember, there's another book that's mentioned. It's the book of life. And in the book of life is the name of every person in history who's ever come to Jesus and said, please forgive me, I want to follow you. Be in charge of my life. Now, the, what matters is the intent of your heart, not just the words coming out of your lips, not just growing up in a church or engaging in some act, although those are important. What matters is, have you given your life to Jesus? Is your name in the book of life? And you may say, well, I don't know enough. I don't know, I don't know enough to to really give my life to Jesus. It's not a test. It's not about you knowing enough. You will learn as you follow Jesus. You may say, well, I've still got questions. Me too. 
I've been following Jesus since I was eight years old, so that's, that's 20 years. <laughs> Liars go to hell, I gotta remember that. <laughs> hey, so, but I still got questions. The questions get answered as you go, and honestly, some of them don't get answered until we meet our Heavenly Father face to face. And you may say, well, I'm just not ready. And I wanna say, when will you be ready? What's it gonna take for you to be ready? Or is it that you just really still wanna be in control? I wanna implore you to make that decision, to invite Jesus into your life. And when you do, the first thing he's gonna ask you to do is to be baptized. And today is a great day to accept Jesus and then say, you know, we're doing lake baptism today, I'll get baptized today. You say, well, I'm not sure what I've got going on this afternoon. What are you gonna be doing at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon? Wouldn't it be great to go ahead and get that done today? Now, we're, we're not done. John's got more to say to us. So he says in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, what John is trying to help us know is that there's no place to hide. In the ancient world, if you died at sea, the thought was that you were hidden from the gods. And John just wants us to be clear. Nope, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Everybody stands before this judgment throne. And we're told that death, death is synonymous with sin. Sin will give up all of its dead. And Hades, the place of the dead in the ancient world, Hades will give up, regurgitate literally, all of its dead. Remember that death is Satan's creation. Hades is Satan's ally because it's a place of hopelessness and they give up their dead. And each person is judged according to what they have done. Some people say, well, I think Christians don't get judged. They're wrong. Paul says in Romans 14.10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we, say this next word with me, all. We all stand before God's judgment seat. What does the word all here mean? It means all, everyone, nobody gets a pass. And when it's my turn, and I will have a turn and you will too, we will come before that great judgment throne. I don't know exactly how this is gonna be done. I don't know if they're gonna read everything under my name. I hope not. I don't know if it's gonna be put up on a big screen. I hope not. I would like God just to whisper it, but I have a feeling I'm not gonna get off that light, and neither will you. But when I, my turn comes and they begin to read off my life, yes, they will read off some good things, but I promise you this, the list of good things is a lot shorter than the list of bad things. They're gonna remind me of sins I forgot I did. They're gonna remind me of sins I've tried to block out. They're gonna remind me of sins and the impact of sins that I didn't even know. Things that I thought may have been really small that may have really damaged other people. And when they get done with my list, this is what I'm counting on. 
I'm counting on Jesus stepping forward and saying, yes, but. He's one of mine. He belongs to me. He followed me. He wasn't perfect. He zigzagged. Sometimes he sat beside the road and pouted, but he's still one of mine. That's what I'm counting on. And that's the hope of every person who accepts Jesus and follows him. John's not done yet. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The lake of fire is where Satan is thrown. It is where the false prophet is thrown and the beast is thrown. All sin is put there. All hopelessness is put there. God is saying death, sin, hopelessness are not going to torment my people anymore. And then finally, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, is that fair? Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's the evidence. What's the evidence show? The evidence shows this is what we all deserve. But the grace of God gives us the escape. Is there a second chance? Nowhere in the Bible is there any indication that there's a second chance. Which means this life must be really important. What we do in this life is really important. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair to me. And I get that. I get it. But here's what I know. God is more fair to you than you are to him. God is more fair to you than you are to him. And I think we can count on his fairness. And if God says, this is your chance... I think he'll give you all the chances you need. People ask, is the lake of fire a literal place? Jesus said it was. Jesus described it as a place that was not only real, but that had flames and fires. And so if that's the way Jesus described it, sounds like that's what it is. He knows more about it than I do. But even if it is not literal flames, I want you to think about what it is. Hell is a place where God isn't. Where people have said, hey, I want to do life on my own. God says, okay, I have prepared a place for you. As the philosopher uh, Dallas Willard says, hell is the best God can do for some people. Because they want to do their life without God. God says, here you have a place. Which means every breath that you take in hell depends on your power, not on his provision. That means in hell, all you've got is your own wisdom. That means in hell, everybody looks out for themselves. And I'll tell you something else interesting. You'd think that people in hell would want to get out, right? You would think that. But you remember, Jesus actually told us this story about the rich man and Lazarus. You remember this story? 
about the rich man being in hell, in torment, Lazarus is in heaven, and what does the rich man request? Send Lazarus down here uh, with just some water to, to put on my tongue, just to cool my tongue. Doesn't that seem like a strange request to you? If I'm in hell, my number one request would have been, get me out of here. People who are in hell apparently want to stay because they get to stay in control. Isn't that an awful thought? Because they've absolutely lost sight of what is good and healthy for their souls. Okay, so what? What are we supposed to do with all this? I want to leave you with two thoughts. First is, now decides then. Now decides then. Your life choices have eternal consequences. And I want to implore you as strongly as I know, give your life to Jesus Christ. Life with God is better. Life with Jesus is better. It is better now, it is better for the remainder of your time on earth, and it will be better in eternity. But now is the chance you have been given. And here's the second thing I really want to drive home for you is check the book. Check the book. Check the book. See, this is a recurring theme in the book of Revelation. That there were a lot of people who claimed to follow Jesus who didn't have real faith. And this always kind of bothers me. Can I I just be honest, transparent? It bothers me because I don't want to manipulate you with fear. Fear tends to lead to short-term decisions that quickly fade away. But I really do think that you ought to pause and ask God, Heavenly Father, is my name in your book of life? Is my name in your book of life? You might even want to consider what Jesus said, by your fruit, people will know you. Is your name the book of life? And then listen to what the Lord tells you. If there's any hesitation, today, secure hope forever by inviting Jesus into your life and giving your life to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, for giving us an escape from hell. I pray now for every person who's listening to this message at Bacala, here in this room, who's watching online, I pray today, Father, that people will make a decision to follow you. And Father, those of us who are believers, help us remember that this really matters. Eternity really matters. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us be a bright light shining into this dark world. I ask all of this in Jesus' name.